Welcome to Real Conversations. I'm your host, T-Mac, and my co-host and specialist commentator, Joe. How are you, Joe? Uh, good, T-Mac. How are you? I'm good. And today, we've got a great guest today. It's Adrian Willenberg from Broker Intelligence. He's going to give us a view on the property market and the, the mortgage broking industry as well. How are you, Adrian? Good. Thank you, T-Mac. Thank you. Um, we're going to ask you a few questions. And Joe, do you want to lead off? Now, Adrian, can you tell us a little bit about your experience in the property market? Thanks, Joe. Okay, so I bought my first property with my ex-wife when I was probably about late 20s. We bought an old dump of a house in a suburb called Carrum Downs, which is not too far from Frankston. And Carrum Downs isn't the sexiest suburb in the world. Having said that, the property was cheap and we bought it because that's what we can afford. We bought that property. And then about three or four years later, we sold it for almost double. And that just shows you how the property market can grow in value. From that point, we then bought a second house in a suburb called Ashburton. Again, we bought an old commission-style home. It should have been bulldozed right from the start, but we renovated it room by room by room ourselves. Now, I'm not, um, I'm not a carpenter. I'm not a tradie. Having said that, it's amazing how much you can learn by doing things on your own. So room by room, we renovated the home. And again, three or four years later, we sold it for almost double. So that's another example of how you can grow your wealth in property. Third home, we bought in Glen Iris, a beautiful suburb. And three or four years later, again, we sold it for almost double. So there's one, two, three houses of where you can buy a property. You get your foot in the door. You do a little bit of work on the homes yourself. As long as you get good capital growth, those homes will grow in value. And that's how where I am today. Now, having said that, sold the Glen Iris home, we've separated, we've gone our own ways. But regardless of that fact, you can make good money in property if you buy the right property. So that's my experience personally. And I'm certainly not rich enough to buy a beautiful home in Glen Iris or anything like that today. But when you start off, you can buy a property in any suburb you like, do some work on it, you'll eventually grow your value in property. And that's how, that's my story. Adrian, can you tell us a little bit about your, uh, your business there, your broking business? Thank you. Okay, so I started my broking business back in 2012. It's, I'm a self-employed finance broker, and I started with one client only, which was my sister-in-law, if you like. And then once you work hard, you build up your business, you then grow that client, one client to two clients to three clients. You bring on some referral partners, and your referral partners believe that you can do a good job, so they start referring new customers to you. And before you know it, you have what I call the snowball effect, where more and more business just keeps coming in because of the good work you do for your existing customers or your existing referral partners. And that's how I grew my business. Now, being a mortgage broker, I'm self-employed. I'm licensed with every single bank in Australia and I get paid a commission for doing this job. So when I sit down with my customers, I don't give them an invoice and they don't pay me a fee. I get paid directly by the lender that I introduce them to. And what's most important to realize is that all the lenders pay me exactly the same amount of money. So whether, Joe, I recommend you borrow with ANZ and TMAC if you borrow with CBA, I don't get any more money or less money from ANZ or CBA. I get exactly the same money, which means I'm not biased to recommend one bank over the other. Now, having said that, there are some brokers who get paid more or less from certain banks, and those brokers are slightly biased, in my opinion, because they would be thinking, well, if I recommend TMAC borrows with CBA because I get paid more, then that's where the, lend, the loan recommendation may end up. So thankfully of for me, course, I get yeah. the same with everyone. So that's how my business works. Excellent. Interesting. And 
Adrian, can you tell us a little bit about the property market at the moment? Um, I know it's been up and down, mostly going up from what I can tell over the last you know, 15 years or so. Um, but there are a lot of talks about it eventually may, maybe taking a turn for the worse. What's your, what's, what are your thoughts on that? Okay. I think the property market had a fantastic run from 2012 to about 2017. 2017. They've had a five years of good run. In that five years, I would say that good properties grew in value by about 1% a month almost. So maybe, you know, about 10% a year. So you had good property growth up until 2017. Then in 2017, the property market had peaked. From 2017 to about 2019, at the start of the year, property prices reduced, probably 5 to 10%, I reckon, per year. So property values have dropped over the last couple of years. Having said that, I think we've hit the bottom and we're on the upward curve again. Reason being is that we've still got huge amounts of migration to Australia, and not just Australia, but to Victoria. So there's lots of migration coming in. Everyone who comes to Victoria has to live somewhere, whether they're renting or they're buying a home. So you've got a massive influx of people who need properties. Secondly, we've had some really good interest rate drops in the last, say, six months. The Reserve Bank has dropped rates not once but twice, and the lenders have passed on most of that cut as well over the last six months as well. So you're in an environment where you've got huge migration coming in, so people need places to live. You've got low interest rates, and the, which is helping people borrow money, of course. The third factor is the banks have recently reduced what they call the serviceability rate. So, for example... The, you might have a home loan and the interest rate might be, say, 4%, as an example. When I check to see how much you can borrow, we factor in a much higher rate of about 7.5%. So what we're trying to do is we're saying, well, if interest rates were to almost double overnight, can you still borrow, can you still afford to repay your loan? And that 7.5% rate was quite high. So the banks have now reduced that to a much lower rate. So now people can afford to borrow slightly more. So you've got a good environment right now. You can borrow more money than you could a year ago. You've got low interest rates, which will help everyone out. But a huge amount of people coming to the country and coming to Victoria. So the property market will pick up, and it has started picking up, in my opinion. Some suburbs might struggle. Some small little apartments in the middle of the city or docklands, um, you may not get that capital growth uh, in a city, those sorts of areas. But you'll still see prices increasing in, out of, in good suburbs anyway, I believe. And do you think it's proportional growth when it comes to apartments as well as residential houses somewhere in the suburb? Or do apartments, I mean, what's the proportion there between the growth? Okay, generally speaking, if you've got land, your property will grow in value more so than an apartment. Now, having said that, if you've got a, 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 an apartment, for example, in the middle of Collins Street in the city or the Docklands or South Bank, you'll get a great rental yield. You get good quality tenants who will pay a good quality rent and you'll get strong and you'll never have an issue of renting the property out. However, if you had a property on land in one of the outer suburbs, close to a railway station, close to employment, then that will grow in value more so than an apartment. So my prediction would be this year, you might see property growth of about maybe 5% for home values, I believe, this year, hopefully. And apartments may grow at slightly less value. But again, it also depends on the apartment you buy. So, uh, you know, a nice two-bedroom, say, Billy Unit, South Yarra, the, you know, those Malvern, um, Elstonwick, those sorts of suburbs, they'll definitely grow in value substantially more than an inner city party, inner city apartment. It all depends on the suburb as well. Yeah. So, Adrian, just in regards to said the property market dropped a little bit from 2017, what was the cause of that? We had an environment, we had rising unemployment, which wasn't good. We had interest rates were a little bit higher than where they are today. And I almost just think that property prices had peaked 
The other reason it dropped is that the government turned off the tap to overseas buyers in lots of ways. So we have lots of foreign buyers who would jump over the top of Australian buyers. When I mean Australian, you could be foreign-born Australian, but overseas buyers are traditionally people who live and reside overseas. They had they were buying a lot of property, they had a lot of money, and they could jump over the top. As soon as the market, the government turned off the tap and made it harder for the overseas buyers, and they pulled out of the market altogether, which reduced prices. So quite often you'd go to an auction and someone would bid and win the auction, and people would say, unfortunately, they would stereotype and say, oh, these Chinese buyers. Now, whether they're Chinese, it doesn't matter what nationality they were, but people from overseas had more money and they were jumping over the top and paying higher prices. Now that they've been, now that they've been removed from the market, that's why prices properly dropped. That was one reason, as well as the unemployment factor rising as well. How were they removed from the... How were they removed from the, um, the market? The, the government put in place buyers. some restrictions. So to buy a property in Australia, you had to reside in the property. That was one of the things. So they made it a lot harder. Uh, the, the stamp, they charged extra fees for clients who were buying property from overseas. And now a lot of the banks also have pulled out to overseas lending. It's very, very, very hard for an overseas client to buy a property in Australia. I've done a couple through certain banks and the hoops they've got to jump through are incredible. So... If, um, say, T-Mac or Joe, if you wanted to buy an investment property, it's quite simple. But if the, one of, if the two of you are living overseas and, you know, living in Switzerland, for example, it's a lot harder. Firstly, a lot of the times the currency isn't accepted, or if they do accept the currency, they don't take 100% of your income, they take a lot less. So it makes it a lot harder to buy a property for overseas buyers. And that yeah. reduces the demand on properties. And in your opinion... Um the difference between, let's say, uh, I just want to go back onto the apartments, houses, units, etc. Yeah. Um, what's what's your forecast? I mean, obviously, a nice house with um, land will always cost more than an apartment. But um, what would you invest in um, over the next six to twelve months? Let's say. Okay, over the next six to twelve months, if I had, let's throw a figure, say seven hundred thousand to invest in, I would always buy. For that figure, I'd probably try and get a really lovely two-bedroom villa unit somewhere around Caulfield, Elstonwick, Ripponlea, um, St Kilda, a two-bedroom, say, Art Deco apartment, somewhere around... South Melbourne, maybe? Yep, yep, exactly, South Melbourne. Anywhere um, southeast of the, southeast of the city, so close to Melbourne, uh, you know, towards um, Hampton, Hyatt, somewhere around there. So I'd stick to those sorts of areas. Um, my probably number one area would be somewhere like Elstonwick, I'd say, or Caulfield. Okay. Um, now, having said that, you can for the for that seven hundred thousand dollars, you could buy a beautiful home in Pakenham and probably have enough money for a couple of new cars as well. However, a suburb like Pakenham, you're very very far away from the city, and there are lots of brand new houses popping up in Pakenham all the time, and the capital growth just won't be there because you're so far away from the city. So stick close to the city, close to some good schools, and I would probably not buy. Uh, an apartment in a block of 20 or 30, like one of the, uh, like a you know, three or four story apartment. I wouldn't buy one of those. Look for a, a small block, you know, six or eight on the block and get an Art Deco villa unit. Perfect. Yeah. Close to good schools and transport. Adrian, just in regards to the broking industry. So uh, yeah. there was a little decline some time back and some say we're at the, we've passed, you know, we're back on the way up for the market. How's the broking industry going through that time? What is it like now? The broking industry, it's it's pretty tough. And I would hate to be a brand new broker right now. It is really, really tough. There's Every bank changes their policies every single day. It's not just a matter of knowing what the lowest two-year fixed rate is at 
certain banks. Every bank has a different policy. It's quite tough. New brokers would probably struggle. There's a lot of competition, and it's not an easy industry to start in because you start with zero dollars. You don't make any money until you start writing loans and getting paid, and that could be some time as well. And whilst you're doing this business, you've still got to you know, cover your own expenses. You've got to put food on the table. You've got to pay your own mortgage. So it's a tough industry to get involved yeah. in. To get started in this industry, you need to have some money aside. You need to have cash in the bank to support you for at least 12 months, or you need to have a loving partner who's working full-time to have income coming in because it is not easy starting out on your own. And I went through those battles early on. Um, thankfully, at that time, my former wife was working, so we had enough money coming in to put food on the table, but it was tough. You know, everyone, if you, to start in this industry, you literally start on $0 and you've got expenses straight away. It's different to buying, you know, the local takeaway chicken and chip shop where you've got income coming in every week through sales. But with broking, you may not write many loans in your first year. And if you do, you've still got to wait for that loan to settle and get paid. And all that time, you've got your own expenses. So it's hard to get started. But the good brokers have survived. There's a lot of what I call um, new brokers would start. I think the, the, the rate I read somewhere, I'm pretty sure, is it 60 or 80% of brokers fail in their first year? So a lot of people drop out. They think it's easy. They think they can make a lot of money straight away. But it's tough. You've got to put your foot down and work really, really hard. Are there possibilities to do after hours or maybe part-time uh, broking? That's a great question. I get asked that question all the time. Now, after hours, you can do after hours. So, look, I could work at 8 o'clock tonight if I wanted to because no one really knows what time I'm working as long as the work gets done. And you can, by email and phone, you can do everything. I visit most of my clients after hours, but it would be bordering on impossible to do this job part-time because there is too much work involved. You need to be on the phone talking to banks, meeting your referral partners, talking to accountants, talking, talking to solicitors, meeting clients, a lot of paperwork involved. You can't do it part-time. I've seen yeah. a few brokers who try and do it part-time while they do something else, but you just can't, you can't dedicate it. The only way you could do this part-time is if you were already a broker for a long time. And for, put it this way. Let's say, for example, I wanted to quit broking and be a full-time um, limousine driver, for example, like that's it, or an Uber driver. Bad example. But if I, I, could, I could certainly do that because I could spend all day driving my car picking up passengers in the streets and then maybe at night time just write one or two loans just to keep me happy and then you'll have enough money coming in. So you can do it that way if you've got the business already but you can't do it the other way around. You can't do this part-time. There's too much work involved. So you can start off uh, full and then go part-time potentially but it's hard to do it the other way around. Exactly, yeah. Because if I, if I didn't need the money from broking then I could do another job and just do a small amount of loans just to give me a little bit of pocket money on the side. You could do it that way. Um, because then I could say, for example, I could just say, well, I don't want to deal with many clients. I'll just take one or two clients a month and all the other clients I can refer to someone else. So I could do a little bit on the side. So as an example, one of my friends is a senior broker. He works four days a week because he doesn't need to work five days a week. He's got enough money coming in. He just works. And so he almost works part-time, if you like. I think he, I think he plays golf every Friday, and that's, that's a great yeah, life well, to have. <laughs> yeah, it's a great life. And you know, my goal one day is to eventually wind down and focus on another 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 job and just do this on the side um, when I get to that point you know, financially. But right now, it's full-time, and I can't see how you can do it part-time when you start off. No way. There's too much to learn, too much to do. You'll get caught up. I suppose also a lot of the customers would come from referrals too. Um, it's just kind of a guess. So it helps yes, being in the game for a longer. Exactly. That's true. So all of my clients right now, are all existing referral partners. So, for example, last night I got a call at five o'clock from a new girl, 
and she said she was re referred to me by two of her cousins. Now, both of her cousins are existing clients of mine, and they were referred by another client many years ago. So I can actually go back and trace from the very time, the very first time a client came to me, and that one would refer their cousin, that one would re refer their friend, that one then refers their other cousin, and then it, there's, it's like a chain. They all refer each other, which is lovely. So yeah. the way I model my business is that if you do a good job for someone and you look after them, you listen to what they want, you give them what they need, and just genuinely take care of them, then they will appreciate you and refer you to your family and friends, and that's how you grow business. I could print out millions and millions of brochures and put them in everyone's letterbox and no one would read them. When I first started out, my son was in kindergarten. He's about three years old. And I printed off all these beautiful brochures, put them in all the little pigeonholes at the kindergarten. I got zero phone calls. And I was trying everywhere to get new business like that. But people don't want to look, come to me via a brochure or via a website or a Facebook ad. It's all by word of mouth. That's how you grow your business. Adrian, in this climate um, of the property market, what's what kind of loan is best to take out? Is it best to take a fixed, to a fixed uh, interest rate loan or a variable? Okay, I get asked that question almost every single day. So the way I'll answer it is like this: Right now, I have a variable rate home loan for myself, and I would recommend most clients to take out a variable rate home loan purely because I think that interest rates will drop maybe later this year, or if not, early next year. So take a variable rate loan for now, and you'll probably benefit from maybe one or two interest rate cuts. Having said that, there are some great fixed rates out there. So the two-year fixed rate, 2.79, you can borrow right now with Bank of Queensland. So that's a cracking two-year fixed rate. I believe in two years' time, rates will have probably bottomed. I can't see them dropping in much further anyway. Um, the only danger with a fixed rate loan is that if you take a fixed rate loan, and let's use the two-year fixed rate, you take your two-year fixed rate, and then in six or eight months, you decide to change your mind. You want to sell your home, or you want to change your loan from fixed to variable. The bank can charge you quite a substantial break fee for breaking the fixed rate loan before it expires. So a, a fixed rate loan is good if you know you're going to be in that fixed rate loan for the duration of the term. And I would, and But right now, I think stick with variable because you might see a couple of drops. I certainly don't think interest rates will jump in the next year anyway. Or, or take Why's a combination that? of both. I still Why think do you think a lot of money, yeah, won't, they won't rise because we've had. A, I still think that the government, uh, well, there's still unemployment and interest rate rising will damage the property market further. The property market has slumped. The property market needs to grow. So I think interest rates will stay low for a little bit longer anyway. I can't see them rising. Okay. And is, so you're saying the economy isn't quite as strong as it, as it should be, perhaps with that unemployment um, slightly rising or maybe not? Not decreasing type of thing? What's your yes, view on I think so, yeah. Yeah, unemployment is still an issue in Victoria and, and it's a really big issue in other states. I've got one of my clients, is a, a friend or client, is a refer is a accountant in Darwin. He's also a referral partner. Darwin's in a lot of trouble. Now, I don't have, I've only got a couple of Darwin clients, um, but places like Darwin are in trouble with employment. A lot of those gas plants and things like that are shutting down. People are closing up shop. Um, that's, that's an example for Darwin. Um, the property market growth in Brisbane is expected to be quite strong, I believe. I read a report yesterday that Brisbane might be a nice hotspot for property. But the actual economy itself, the unemployment, wages growth are not very high at the moment. I think, and the property market isn't has, isn't really bubbling along right now. It is improving, but it hasn't, not to the same level as it was a few years ago. So for those few reasons, I believe that interest rates will remain low for a little bit longer anyway, at least another 12 months, maybe even two years. 
That's all right. I was going to say that's that's a good thing for property buyers, I guess, in this climate. Yes. Yep. Go on, Joe. Uh, just a question about uh, people that are thinking about going into the property market. So as uh, myself, uh, there are a lot of others that are thinking about buying their first property. Um, what kind of advice could you give to those kind of people? Okay, the first thing you need to do when buying a property is you need to speak to a broker. And a good broker will sit down with you and talk to you and they'll say, okay, Joe, this is your situation. You're looking to buy your first property. So let's spend five or ten minutes Let's discuss how much you earn. Let's discuss how much you currently have saved in the bank. And let's discuss the types of properties that you think you might buy and how much you want to spend. And then from there, we can work out how much you can afford to spend. We, I can show you how much your repayments will be. I can show you the, the suburbs which I think will be suitable in your price range. And I can explain how the home loan process works. It's really important to get a good understanding of all of that because if you think you want to buy your first home, it's very dangerous to turn up at auction, put up your hand and bid and buy a home without speaking to a broker first because a broker will be able to show you how much you can afford to spend and really set you up in the right way. So a lot of my clients are just like that. I'll, you know, They may not do anything for a 6 or 12 months, but I give them that education. They understand what they can do when the time is right, and then they'll come back when they're ready. Well, I keep a track on them anyway, but the most important thing is definitely speak to a broker and sit down and they'll show you all of your numbers. That's the most important thing. Uh, what I've heard a lot of people doing is get their first property, buy it, but don't live in it. So rent it out, maybe straight away or maybe after half a year. Um, can you tell us a little bit about something like that? Okay. This is how it works. If you're a first-time buyer, if you buy a property under $600,000, as an example, which is a good price to spend, if you're a first-time buyer, you don't pay any stamp duty. Okay? And if it's brand new, you'll get $10,000 bonus from the government. But either case, under $600,000, you don't pay stamp duty. You would live in the property for 12 months. After 12 months, you can move out and you can rent it out, okay? If you rent it out straight away from day one, firstly, you'll pay stamp duty, and secondly, you won't get that $10,000 bonus because you're buying what they call an investment property. So my advice to everyone is if you're buying your first home, live in it for at least 12 months. If you find after 12 months that you can't afford it, then move out and rent it out. Or get a tenant to move in and help you pay some of the rent. But I wouldn't be buying, if you're spending under 600 in your first home, I wouldn't, well, you can buy an investment property, like, for example, some kids are living with mum and dad, they, they don't want to move out, fair enough, they can then buy an investment property, but if you want if you want to buy your first home, live in it for at least 12 months, get that stamp duty savings, that's important, that will save you, you know, 20 grand, get that $10,000 bonus if it's brand new as well, and you can always, you can always uh, rent it out. Right, that's some really good advice. To. Yeah, yeah, definitely live in it first, but you must live in it for 12 months. Adrian, if if a, a young buyer wants to come into the market but can't afford those inner city areas and can only afford like the Pakenhams and so forth, and from what you just said before, the capital growth is not really there. It's a long way from the city and such. The infrastructure is just not built there. Is it still worth getting into the market, although you're way out in Pakenham? I'm not bagging Pakenham here, but like if you're way out in Pakenham or you know, Craigie Burn, is it still worth getting into the market even though the capital growth isn't there? Well, it is because it's it's what suits some people. So now I use Packenham and Point Cook as my two examples, mainly because they both start with letter P and one of my best mates lives in Point Cook and I've got people in Packenham as well, my former sister-in-law. And they both bought these beautiful, beautiful, massive homes, brand new, that triple the size of what I'd ever love to live in myself. There's nothing wrong with those houses. And if you're happy living out there, that's totally fine. What I hear from them, like my friend Nick in Point Cook, he's always frustrated with the traffic and the trains coming to the city back and forward. 
but that's the choice you make. If you want that big home, if you want that you know, four-bedroom four, four bedroom home and you can afford Pakenham or Point Cook, well, that's good because you can't afford that beautiful four-bedroom home, you know, in, say, Malvern, for example, So it's too expensive. You've got to buy somewhere. And then if that suits your lifestyle, that's good. You know, if you're happy in, in a suburb further out, you may, you may be working in a location not far from where you're living anyway, so that could suit you. Or, you know, you may not be wanting to come into the city all the time. And if you're a family person, you may not need to come into the city every week to go out to pubs and bars and whatever like you used to in the younger days. Depends on your lifestyle. But usually my clients who are some are young single couples, they all want closer to the city because that's what suits them. My clients who are families, they generally go further out. So I had a client the other day who bought in a suburb called Doveton. So Doveton, if you're not familiar, is sort of not too far from Nanninong. And Doveton when I was a kid, had a bad reputation. It was a, not the nicest suburb in the world. But having said that, Doveton has old houses on massive big blocks of land. And Doveton is still reasonably close to the city compared to Pakenham. So people are moving to a suburb like Doveton, which will be good in a few years' time for sure because the location will always be close to the city. It all depends on where you want to live, depends on what your own situation is. So, I mean, I, I personally like living close to the city. I go out to the city all the time. So that suits me. Um, you know, but if I had a family and all of my relatives were living further out, then I may move further out too. And how does capital gain um, calculate into that? So the uh, properties, let's say in Pakenham, for example, in two years' time, what would be the percentage they would go up in price compared to something like, you know, South Melbourne or, um, you know, Richmond or something like that? Okay. Yeah, that, and that's, that's where you'll have the problem. So if you bought... Okay, let's say you bought a beautiful four-bedroom brand-new home in Pakenham or Point Cook and you spent, say, 600000 on it. In two years' time, it might be worth six fifteen, six twenty, maybe, not much more. The reason is because your beautiful brand-new home will have lots of other beautiful brand-new homes right next door to it and new ones just like that being built all the time. So the capital growth won't be there. Plus, you're so far away. But if you bought in Richmond, you're 10 minutes from the city, you've got probably a nice you know, one- or two-bedroom, say, two-bedroom unit there, Yes, there are some newer places popping up in Richmond all the time, but you're still so close to the city. You'll get massive rental as well, good quality tenants as well, because more people will want to be renting in Richmond, especially those younger younger people who work and live in the city. So definitely capital growth is king. It'll be a lot higher closer into the city than further out. Now, having said that, there's a really good example about Bendigo and Ballarat. Now, I'm not sure if you boys are familiar with Bendigo and Ballarat, but there's, lot, there's hospitals, there's universities, there's infrastructure out there. There's fast train lines being planned, and those locations, we call them satellite cities, there's some strong capital growth predicted for those two suburbs as well. Well, they're bigger than suburbs, they're towns, and there's a lot going on in those areas as well. And you, know, you might be a, a doctor or a nurse, and you might, you might want to move out to Bendigo or Ballarat for the hospitals out that way, and you'll get some good quality capital growth out that way as well. You could rent that property to a number of nurses or doctors and get some good growth too. Uh, Dalesford to me seems also a place to um, where the prices have been going up lately. Dalesford, okay. I'm I've been to Dalesford a couple of times, usually for those bed and breakfast type places. I'm not familiar with how the property value grows in Dalesford. I couldn't give you an honest answer. It's a lovely okay. town, but I couldn't honestly um, give you a, prop, uh, a good analysis of Dalesford, unfortunately. Uh, no worries. I don't, I don't know enough about it. <laughs> yeah, all good. It's just uh, coincidentally, my parents have um, a property up there, so I go up there a fair bit, and uh, okay. yeah, they seem to be going up in price all the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's good, and 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 there will be towns like that, I've just, and that's fantastic if it's going up in value. Beautiful. Mm. 
Adrian, just in regards to, I notice in Box Hill, Doncaster, and these sort of suburbs, there's a lot of high-rise growing up, especially in Box Hill, a lot of high-rise being built. Um, what's your view on those? Like, there's suburban high-rise. They're probably 15Ks, maybe roughly 20, 15Ks out from the city. What's your view on that as an investment? Okay, as an investment, I wouldn't really think those high-rise apartments are good value. Um, Box Hill, and there's a lot in Glen Waverley as well, and there are so many of them, but as a tenant, if you have a, I'm sure you could easily rent out one of those properties. You'll get a good quality tenant renting your property. They'll pay good quality rent and you'll have no issue renting because people want to live in Box Hill and those suburbs. They're close to the city. Capital growth, I don't think will be there. I still believe if you had a two bedroom, I keep saying two bedroom art deco unit, two bedroom, two, uh, you know, let's say there's a group of eight or 10 on the ground level and you're getting, you know, one of those, that's perfect. High-rise apartments, they all look the same. So if you have a high-rise apartment, there might be 40 or 50 or 60 apartments. What really differentiates yours when you want to sell it from the other 49 that are also on the same block? Whereas if there's only five or six on the block, there's your value. Um, I had a client the other day. They lived just opposite the Box Hill Hospital in one of the little side streets there. There were only four units on the block. And that was they lived, it was quite a rundown place. It wasn't that nice. But there's only four on the block. And that was perfect. They had a little bit of yard. They had more space, more land. It was perfect. Whereas a brand new place in Box Hill, as an example, would be a tiny, small little apartment and be very, very identical to everything else out there. So the capital growth is not there in the small apartments as there is in a little ground floor, you know, two-bedroom place. Makes sense, yeah. Yeah. Um, is it, are you aware, Adrian, that, I don't know, over the last year or two, do you know if anything has changed in regards to how banks calculate your collateral based on how much you want to borrow? Yeah, a lot has changed. So... In the old days, it was really, really simple. We just looked at how much you earn, how much your current personal loan limit is, how much your current credit card limit is, and you put all those numbers through the computer, and that's, yeah, that's how much you can borrow. Now it's a lot different. They've made a massive change to what they call the living expenses. So how that works is, so for example, me, I'm a single dad, I've got one son, and let's say, for example, I'm talking to a couple with three children. A couple with three children have a lot higher living expenses than I would have. So what the banks do is they look at your bank statements for the last three months. We, we as brokers go through line by line by line and look at how much you're spending and we work out a couple with three kids would spend more money per month on general living expenses than a single dad would with one kid. So borrowing capacity will be reduced depending on the number of kids you have and that depending on the limits of your loans and credit cards. So you can borrow a lot less if you have higher living expenses. And it's really important when, if you're applying for a loan, if you, when you show your three months worth of bank statements, if you're, you're spending a lot of money, the banks will reduce how much you can borrow. And I've got a real life example. This is how silly it can be. One of my clients, she's a police officer. She was a single female living at home with mum and dad. Her living expenses for the previous three months were out of control. She was spending money on nails and makeup and hair and massages and all the sort of stuff that girls spend their money on. I took that application to the bank and the bank said she's spending far too much money so we're going to lend her less. I turned around to the bank and said, well, let's get serious. She's a single female living at home. She doesn't have any expenses. She's not paying rent or any bills. She's just enjoying herself like most people do when they're that age. The bank still said no. So I took her to a different bank. The bank overlooked that spending, recent spending, and they used their brains and got the loan approved for her, and she was able to borrow the money she needed. But, yeah, living expenses are a big one. You've got to keep your living expenses under control. Um, if you've got private school fees, that's a huge one because... Banks are not silly. They know that if you've got your kid at a private school, you might be paying 10 or 20 or 30 grand a year. 
then you then you'll be paying that for the next five or six years, however long your child is at school, and it's more than likely you'll continue to keep your child at that school rather than pull them out. So you've got to factor in things like that as well. So it's all yeah, living expenses have really changed in the last couple of years. They're really tough on that, and that takes up a lot of my time as a broker. Like I've got to go through statements, one line and another, answering every every question about what's this, what's this, what's this, and adding it all up and working out how much you can spend every month. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, Adrian, if people want to get in touch with you for some mortgage broking advice or you know what loan to apply for, how can they get in touch with you? That would be lovely. And I would love to have the opportunity to speak to some new customers. And if customers are referred to me. They're my favorite types of clients. But I take in customers off the street, if you like. I'm happy to deal with them as well. The best way is to contact me via either my website or my mobile phone or my office phone or email, whatever they like. And I'm, I can give you those details you could flash it up on the screen later on if you like but they can definitely give me a call and i'm not a pushy broker i don't force you to borrow the absolute maximum possible and then force you to buy a home just so i can get the business i would rather take you on as a customer and look after you with the hope of doing a really good job for you and then not only getting your business but also getting your business from your family and your friends and your relatives and everyone like that as well and that's how i grow my business and if you're not ready to do anything right now that's totally fine I can still talk to you right now and I'll give you some time and explain what you can do when the time is right and then we'll talk again when you're really ready. So, yes, they can contact me and I'll give you those details and you can flush it up on your screen if you like. That'd be wonderful. Yes. Great. Great. All right. All right, Adrian, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we've learned a lot about the property situation in Australia and, the, and, the, and more to the point of the banking situation as well. So thanks for your time today. I appreciate it. You're thank very you, Adrian. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you, T-Mac. Thank you, Joe. Thank you.